You're listening to the Goop Podcast, made possible by our friends at Blue Diamond. I'm always curious about what routines successful people follow, beginning with how they start their day. Our beauty team at Goop runs an editorial feature called My Morning Routine, where they ask people both inside and outside the company how they get going every day. They just interviewed our fashion editor, Eileen, for the column. In addition to being a great fashion editor, Eileen is currently the cutest pregnant woman ever. And when you see Eileen's glowy skin, you want to know what she does to take care of it. Part of her routine is snacking on almonds during the day. She goes for Blue Diamond Whole Natural Almonds. They're non-pareil, supreme almonds, an excellent source of vitamin E, which may support healthy skin. To see Eileen's morning routine with Blue Diamond Whole Natural Almonds, go to goop.com. Hi again. Thanks for joining us. If this is your first time, here's what you can expect. Every Thursday and a bunch of Tuesdays coming up, Goop editors will be sitting down with thought leaders who are pushing boundaries in their fields. We'll talk to doctors, creatives, CEOs, and relationship experts. You'll hear me interviewing some of the people I admire most in this world, and you'll also hear a lot from my chief content officer at Goop, Elise Lunin. I love listening to Elise's interviews because she asks the smartest questions and really just listens. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Howard Schultz. As the former CEO of Starbucks, Howard is the entrepreneur who made Starbucks into the mega company it is today. He's also an author, and his new book is called From the Ground Up, A Journey to Reimagine the Promise of America. It was a really interesting time to have a catch-up with Howard and learn more about his political philosophies directly from him. I would define servant leadership by giving yourself to others, by recognizing that success is best when it's shared, recognizing that almost everything in life is a team sport, and if you're leading an organization, people need to be part of something larger than themselves, and it's not about you. Uh, Being present, being human, and having a high degree of sensibility beyond the purpose of the business. So let's get right to our chat. So thank you so much. I'm sitting with Howard Schultz, and we are we're in a cafe, and it's it's noticeable, isn't it? Yeah, and I'm drinking tea actually instead of coffee because I've got you've, a cold. You've really set the scene. Are you yeah. allowed to drink tea? Yeah. I'm totally allowed to drink tea. You are? Okay. I guess they sell tea at Starbucks. Yes, we do. (laughs) I'm so excited to talk to you. And I I know when I first met you this past summer, I peppered you with a lot of questions. And to your point, I probably should have had this microphone. I thought we were having a podcast (laughs) over dinner, so we can just repeat it. I thought we were, too. But, you know, it's interesting because when I, I obviously know not that much about you, but enough from, you know. And you're somebody in the business world I really admire, um, both as a purpose-driven CEO and also what you are able to build. Mm. And I guess because it also pertains to me right now at this stage in my company and my life, what were your what were the biggest hurdles that you had to growth at Starbucks? Um, well, believe it or not, first off, I'm it's. Great to see you. Thank Congratulations you. on your marriage and your Thank wedding. You. Your mini honeymoon. <laughs> I was really looking forward to seeing you. So uh, it's hard for me to believe, but 
1987, Starbucks had 11 stores and 100 people working for the company. And uh, we had a dream to obviously build a national company, a national brand, but there was something else we were trying to do. And I, I think this speaks a lot to my own childhood and the values that I grew up with, but we were trying to build a different kind of company that would balance profit with conscience, with responsibility. And I think the hardest part about trying to build a values-based company when you don't have any money is we had to go out and raise money, equity, from investors. So I had, I had no money at all, and I had no resources, and I had to try and convince people to invest in the company. So if you think about this, we were going to give health insurance to every single employee, you know, almost 25 years before the Affordable Care Act, ownership to everyone. And, uh, ownership, we, like ownership, basis points? Ownership in the form of stock options to every employee. Wow. And uh, we're going to charge more for the coffee with Italian names that no one could pronounce. And most people said no. So the hardest part early on was trying to raise money and also, I think, have the perseverance when so many people said no. And uh, there's so many anecdotes about that period that things could have gone a different way. Before we got on and started talking, uh, you asked me about Sherry, and if it wasn't for Sherry and my wife, we wouldn't be here because uh, you know, one anecdote of the whole story is her father came to me. Uh, Sherry was pregnant with our first child, and her father came to me and said, my daughter's eight months pregnant. You're not earning any money. It's kind of a hobby. You need to get a job. And, and I actually started to cry. Mm. Uh, I was so embarrassed. And I came home that night, and if Sherry would have said, I think he's right, we need to get serious here. But she didn't. Uh, she said, we'll see this through. My father shouldn't have done that. Uh, and he was just obviously trying to take Protect care of his daughter. his daughter, of course. So that was a turning point. Uh, but fast forward, we were able to raise the money. From who? Uh, individual investors at first, and later on from institutions when we had something to really show. But in those days, it was more of a dream, incredible amount of just fanatical passion and sacrifice of trying to build the kind of company that no one thought was possible and also try and create a national business around coffee that just didn't exist in America at the time. I read that you were in Italy and you saw the kind of culture and community around the Italian square. Right. And I thought of it this summer, actually, because I was in Capri, which is one of the classic Italian, yes. you know, yes. summer squares. Beautiful. And that sense of community, that sitting down and having right. a coffee. Right gives people. So how did you start to pro proliferate the American culture with that new idea of community? So I went to Italy for the first time in 1983. And I was going to a trade show. Uh, and I was walking the streets of Milan. I had never been to Milan before. And of course, as you know, you can't walk the streets in the entire country without being intercepted by 10 coffee bars. And I started going into them. And what I experienced was this deep sense of community, the ritual of espresso, the third place between home and work. But really, the, the essence of it all was humanity. Mm. And coffee was the conduit. Right. And I raced back to America thinking, 
uh, I think I've seen something that we could uh, more or less replicate, but through an American lens. And that was the kind of the genesis for the idea. And, uh, and you know, at the time, quality coffee in America did not exist. We, we you know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I think we've changed the culture in so many different ways. But the, the secret sauce of Starbucks as a business is not only that, that we're trying to source and roast the highest quality coffee in the world and the design of our stores, but it's the experience that's brought to life by our people. And the and, consistency, I mean, as a consumer, if yeah. I can say, the consistency of the product. And it's almost like, especially if you're traveling for work a lot, which I often am, yeah. to have that experience of, you know, I had, as I told you, a very personal experience with Starbucks. That there was a very early one. I was living in my first apartment trying to make it as an actor in L.A., and I used to walk to save gas to the Starbucks, and I got so addicted to the lattes, and I would right. be digging around in my couch trying to find quarters to go. <laughs> and I think because it was such an indelible experience, the community there, I knew people, I made right. friends there. It was such a different experience. And now I take that with me. So I, if I'm on location in Barcelona and I have a Starbucks, it's like this, it's almost like... You feel like you're home. You feel like you're home. Right. It's a very powerful, sensory, resonant feeling. Yeah. So how, so how, back to the question of what were the hurdles? Yeah. Well, um, there were so many hurdles. And, <laughs> and, and seriously, I mean, I think if you look... In 1987, the odds on us getting from there to here would virtually be impossible, really. And it'll sound a little trite, but it, it really could only happen in America because the, the entrepreneurial story is so consistent with the opportunity that exists in this country, which still exists despite the current climate, which I don't know if we're going to get to or not. But uh, So I'm going to tell you a, a great story okay. uh, that speaks to... Uh, an unexpected person that helped me when I was almost when it was almost over. Okay, so here it is. Um, I'm, this is a long-winded story. I'm going to try and make it quick, as quick as I can. Um, so first off, I'm, I was not the founder of Starbucks. I know. I came to Starbucks when they were opening store number four, and in 1987, the but owners, you had your own coffee shop. Yeah, I had a few of my own after I left Starbucks when I came back from Italy. Okay. Uh, the Starbucks had acquired Pete's Coffee Company in Northern California. Right. And so there was one company, Starbucks and Pete's, and Starbucks got into financial trouble. The founder of the company came to me and said, we're not going to be able to sustain both brands. I want to sell Starbucks to you. That was the great news. Bad news is I didn't have any money. So he gave me 60 days of a, an exclusive opportunity to go out and raise the money was and, it on, it was like 3.8 million dollars? Yeah, you did your homework. It's very good. Yeah, 3.8 million dollars for six stores in 1987. And um, so he came to me about a month in and he said, "How are you doing raising the money?" And I said, <laughs> "I have about half of it raised. I'm sure I'm going to find the other half." And truth is, I didn't know where it was going to come from, but I I believed I'd find it. And he said, "We have a problem." I I said, "What's the problem?" And he said, uh, "One of your investors from the Italian coffee bar business that I had has gone around you and come to me with an all-cash offer, oh, no God. due diligence, and wants to basically close within a couple of weeks. And if you're, if you're not going to be able to raise the money, I'm going to have to take it. And I, I just said, 
how could that happen? I had an exclusive deal, and he said, I don't know how he found out, and I, I was crushed. And I really, I could feel it slipping away. Now, here's the issue. The guy uh, in Seattle who was behind all this was one of the titans of Seattle. I mean, he was just a giant, successful person who, who was like a whale, and I was the minnow. He could crush me. And so that night, I was telling a friend of mine the story and how, what a bad situation I'm in. He was a young lawyer, and he said, you need to come to our law office tomorrow and see our senior partner. And I said, oh, who is it? And he said, uh, it's Bill Gates Sr. I, I had never heard of Bill Gates Sr. And Bill Gates at that point was not Bill right. Gates. So that morning, I went to his office to meet Bill Gates Sr., who is about six foot seven, six foot eight, and at that time, uh, he was just a, he was the man in Seattle in terms of the legal profession, and he was a towering fig physical figure. I sat down, he asked me a few questions, I told him the story, and he, and he said, I've got two more things to ask you. Is everything you told me true? I said, yes, sir, it is. And then he said, have you left anything out? And I said, no. And he said, come back in two hours. And, and I, I said, okay, well, uh, what's going to happen? He said, just come back in two hours. So I, I left with my friend. I sat, had a cup of coffee, came back in two hours, and Bill Gates stood up and said, we're going to go for a walk. And I said, where are we going? And he said, we're going to go see the man. And my heart was racing, racing. I mean, I, I was just, I had no idea what was gonna, about to happen. And I don't know if he called or not, but we just stormed into his office, and he was sitting behind his desk. Bill Gates, all six foot seven, six foot eight, towered over the desk and basically said, you are gonna stand down, you should be ashamed of yourself, you are not gonna steal this kid's dream. We're gonna walk out of here, and this thing is done. Do you understand me? And the guy never said a word. And we walked out, and I, I just said, uh, Mr. Gates, what just happened? And he said, you're going to buy the company and my son and I are going to help you. And if it wasn't for Bill Gates Sr., there would be no Starbucks and we wouldn't be sitting here today. But here's the, here's the humility of the story. He never told a soul. And in fact, wow. last year at the Microsoft CEO Summit, I spoke. And Satya Nadella, the CEO of Microsoft, is on the Starbucks board, said, you got to tell the Gates story. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll tell it. And Bill and Melinda were in the front row. I tell the story, and I realize while I'm telling the story that Bill never heard it. He didn't know. And when I got off the stage, Bill met me, and he said, who was it? And I've never told anyone, because the family still lives in Seattle. That man has passed away. And be respectful of them, I've never said anything. But I did tell Bill. And, uh, but his father never told a soul how he helped me, how he had my back, and how he saved me. I am, that story is astonishing. That's it was incredible. Just a, 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 you know, and I, I, I've, I've, I have not told many people this story, but I write about it in the new book that I have coming out. I'm glad that you write about it. 
That's amazing. A rabbi would say that's... Brashert. That's amazing. Wow. That yeah. made me very emotional, that story. Why did you bring up a rabbi? Oh, I don't know. I think because, well, I'm half Jewish. Yes. And I just had, I, I just got married and our ceremony was predominantly Jewish. And um, Under a chuppah. Under a chuppah. And I, my husband is Jewish. He's 100% Jewish. Mm. And, um, and it's something that I've studied on and off for a long, long time. And my rabbi once said to me that when somebody does an act like that and keeps it private, it's like 10 times more powerful. And that the ramifications of a private act like that is sort of felt around the whole world. And that there's so much uh, honor in not telling the mitzvahs that you do. But that's really... Wow, I, I have a whole new love for Bill Gates and his father. <laughs> no, it was just, uh, yeah. Are you spiritual at all? I would say I am. I am spiritual, and I've, I've had spiritual experiences what, that have really like moved what? me. That's why I asked you about the rabbi. Am I going to tell another story? Yeah, come on. Well, if the Gates story moves you, this is really going to... I'll be in a puddle of tears by the end of this podcast. I'll need to get a martini. Thank God we're at a bar. So, for many years, uh, I had a very unusual relationship and friendship, believe it or not, with a Hasidic rabbi in Israel. And I say, believe it or not, because I'm, I would be considered a secular Jew. Uh, but what I learned from this rabbi is there's no such thing. We're all Jewish, if we are, and we all worship one God. Anyway... Uh, I've had this very special relationship with this rabbi, and I would go back to Israel from time to time, and I would study with him, and not study religion, but study humanity, wisdom, in service of others. And I've been in pursuit my whole life of the meaning of what it means to be a servant leader. And in fact, I, I think so much of what we've tried to do at Starbucks is teach servant leadership. And what Wait, we- can I just stop you? Can yeah. you define that for me? I would define servant leadership by giving yourself to others, by recognizing that success is best when it's shared, recognizing that almost everything in life is a team sport. And if you're leading an organization, people need to be part of something larger than themselves, and it's not about you. Uh, Being present, being human, and having a high degree of sensibility beyond the purpose of the business. And we talked about that in the summer, that every business needs to have a core purpose and a reason for being, but it's not about making money. And, and we have to teach servant leadership because you're trying to elevate the organization so that new leaders emerge. Right. And so it's selflessness. So getting back to the rabbi. Yeah, sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. Um, so I have this longstanding relationship with this rabbi, and I was in Israel on a business trip. And the rabbi lives in Jerusalem. But I wasn't in Jerusalem. I was in Tel Aviv. But my name was in the paper, and Rabbi's wife saw my name in the paper, and the phone rang, and she said, uh, in a classic way, has the rabbi offended you? <laughs> and I said, uh, Mrs. Finkel, of course not. The rabbi has not offended me. Why? What's wrong? She said, well, we, we just read that you were in Israel, and we're wondering when you're going to come see the rabbi since you haven't called him. 
And I said, I, I, can't, I can't get to Jerusalem. It's, just, it's impossible. And she said, uh, the rabbi expects to see you. <laughs> just, you know, Jewish guilt is a powerful, powerful <laughs> thing. It uh, is, so, uh, I changed my schedule and I made my way to Jerusalem to go see the rabbi. And it was wonderful to see him. And the rabbi, uh, Rabbi Finkel, who has since passed away, uh, was suffering for years, but the, the acute nature of his Parkinson's disease was really nearing its end. I sat with him for about an hour or so, and then he said, uh, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, I'm not going to leave Jerusalem and not go to the Wailing Wall. And he surprised me, shocked me, and said, uh, can I go with you? And I, I, I just said, are you really, you're going to go to the Wailing Wall with me? And he, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll meet you there. So it was a stunning thing because Rabbi Finkel would be like the equivalent of a cardinal in the Vatican. Wow. He's just too well known, and, and, I was, and he was sick. So we made a plan to meet at the Wailing Wall in about an hour. Uh, as it would have it, an hour, comes, an hour passes, and an old jalopy Volkswagen gets right to the gate because of who he is with the security pass, and two young men get out of the car, and they help him, and they walk him towards me because he can hardly walk. And we're now about 30 yards away from the wall. And you've been to the wall, and you know how... I haven't. You haven't. Never been. Oh, well... Never been to Israel. Gwyneth! I know. Okay. I'm going. I think every, every person in the world should go to Israel. I agree. Uh, and it's not about a Jewish experience. It's about something... No, it's different. the center of world yes. spirituality. Yeah. So the rabbi and, now about 30, rabbi and I are now about 30 yards away from the wall. Now, Rabbi Finkel is the most pious, religious, respected person uh, of his generation in Jerusalem. And uh, we start walking to the wall, and, I try to, and I'm helping him, and we get to about 10 yards and here's the story. Okay, wait, wait for it. Here it is. He stops me. And I said, Rabbi, what's wrong? And he pauses and he says, uh, I, I can't go any further than this. And I, I said, Rabbi, I don't, I don't understand. What, what do you mean you can't go any further? Why are we here? And he says, I've never been closer than this to the wall the holiest place in Israel, where everyone in the world comes to put their hands on the wall and say a prayer, to be as close to God as you can get. And here's Rabbi Finkel telling me he's never been closer than this. And I finally say, Rabbi, I really don't understand. Tell me, what are you saying? And he says, I'm not worthy. And with that, he takes his hand on my back and pushes me to the wall and says, say a prayer for me. So when you ask me, am I, do I have a spiritual sense, it's those kinds of experiences that are great lessons about humility, about what it means to uh, demonstrate vulnerability and truthfulness and, uh, and honor. And he was a great man, and he, he never, he, he passed away two years ago, Rabbi Finkel never touched the wall because he did not think he was worthy. And it was quite a moment. And uh, I've cherished that, and I've told that story a number of times. 
as a lesson for so many people, uh, especially when you're trying to build an organization because humility is something that unfortunately we have lost. And it's a, such a powerful character of humanity, of leadership, and uh, such an important time, certainly in the country, uh, for us to embrace humility uh, because I think in many ways America is losing its conscience as a result of the hate and the vitriol and the divisiveness that is being spewed by uh, this president uh, and his enablers. We're taking a quick break so I can tell you about one of our partners. When I was sitting down to write my cookbook, The Clean Plate, the first rule was that everything had to taste really good. The second was that every recipe had to comply with the fundamentals of clean eating. The challenge of cleaning up a recipe is inherently interesting to me, but maybe the most challenging part was coming up with a clean pantry to begin with. Once you cut out the junk, you're essentially just left with raw ingredients, so they need to be hero ingredients that you can lean on and use again and again, like Blue Diamond Whole Natural Almonds. Blue Diamond uses non-pareil supremes, which sounds very fancy and tastes really good. Their almonds are also a good source of magnesium and an excellent source of vitamin E, which I've always been told is a smart addition to a healthy skin routine. You can find Blue Diamond Whole Natural Almonds in a 6-ounce can or on-the-go packs. If you're stocking your pantry, go for the 1-pound or 25-ounce bag. You can blend the almonds into smoothies or just keep them on hand for snacks. To see how our fashion editor likes her Blue Diamond Whole Natural Almonds, just head to goop.com. Back to my chat with Howard. How do you think that we can learn to bring humility back into the consciousness and how can we learn to really start listening to each other? Because when I think about resistance and hate, I, to me, what immediately comes up is a lack of listening and a kind of hubris that comes along with that inability to listen. How, how do we get back there? Well, I, I, I think we are, I, I, first of all, I believe that the majority of Americans do not hate each other. I uh, agree. That the majority of Americans are not as divided as cable news is making us feel as if we are, and not as divided as the Republicans and Democrats and this president is making us out to be. I do believe in the kindness and the goodness and the compassion and the empathy of the American people. But I think it's, there's such a burden on all of us to remind ourselves of both who we have been and who we need to be. And I think people are longing for that. I don't have a panacea of how to get there, but I, I know one thing. This, this is not the current state of affairs. The crisis in our democracy is, is not who we are. And I, I know we're better than this. And I know our, our best days are ahead of us. I just know it. This is, just, this is going to be a moment in time that we're going to look back on and, and say those were not our best days. I mean, I, and I think it's going to take a lot of people individually and collectively to come together to recognize that we are in this together. And we must demonstrate to one another and the rest of the world the values, the idealism 
uh, and the aspiration of the promise of the country. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we are a country of people who are entitled to their beliefs. Yes. We are a, the whole foundation of the country is built so that we can express those ideas. But it seems to me that the, the way in which we are now expressing those ideals on either side have become incredibly toxic and don't yeah. seem to be moving anything forward. And it's interesting, you know, having a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old and a son, my concern as a mother is the, the hate, the hateful yes. rhetoric that has become a part of the daily conversation and what everybody's entitled to their own opinion. And I respect many different opinions, but... But you mentioned something that I think is not talked about enough, and that is during this period of a lack of civility, a lack of respect, we are imprinting a younger generation uh, with a lack of civility and hate and fear. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to know the consequences of that for quite some time. And that's why I think we have just a such a significant responsibility to our children and our grandchildren to significantly reject this level of rhetoric and behavior, which we all, well, not all, but most of us know is inconsistent with the values of the country and how we're supposed to act as Americans. And I, I think uh, you, you're right about our freedoms and our pursuit of happiness, and that should be unleashed as opposed to uh, creating a false narrative about whether it's a caravan the issues around immigration. Um, I, I do believe there are common sense solutions on both sides of the aisle if people would come together and remove their self-interest and their ideology and recognize that they've been elected to represent all of America, not their individual constituency. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just a shame that we're in a situation where ideology and party over country seems to be what we stand for. And I think yeah. what we need to get back to is all of us in terms of not only our elected officials, but all of us in terms of how we see the world and how we see the country mm -hmm. recognize this is a time to embrace country over party. How much of current policy do you think is being dictated by the economic you know, preserving the economic interests of the people who are in charge, basically. I don't know if it's so much the economic interest as it is the ideology of the people in charge. And some of that ideology is certainly driven by economic interest. But when I examine kind of the landscape of our economy, I reject the fact that the stock market is a proxy for how well America's right. doing. That's what I was going to ask you next. When, when the facts are that over 40% of Americans don't have $400, uh, or almost 6 million young people are not in school and not in work. So I, 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 don't, I don't believe we are providing the American people with the kind of empathic leadership that would solve complex problems for the entire country because there's such a, a level of self-interest, which in large part is being driven by economic interest, but it's more than that. It is the ideology which somehow is, 
is has created such a separation between uh, so many different people, and it's it's never been like this, and it should not be like. Yeah. That. Why is the stock market where it is? Well, I'm not an economist, but <laughs> um, I mean, first of all, I say you know this is a moment in time. The stock market could go down tomorrow, and but uh, the stock market generally has risen to these heights because of Trump's lowering of the corporate tax rate from 35 to 21 percent and a level of deregulation. And in both cases, that has given a short term, and I think that's the operative word here, a short term sugar high for corporations in America to have much higher profits. However, when I examine the underbelly of the economy, and by that I mean we're sitting with more than $21 trillion in debt. At some point, uh, that debt is going to have to be paid for. And I view that as a reckless level of leadership. And, and a, we have a moral obligation to pay that debt down because that is going to be on the backs and the burden of our children and grandchildren. And uh, we're going to add a trillion dollars of that debt a year under this administration. So the, the stock market is not a proxy for the economy. Uh, whether it goes up and down in the next two years is, remains to be seen. But I'm more concerned with the millions of Americans who are being left behind by a poor health care system, a poor education system, an immigration system that's obviously creating such havoc in the country. And I think in all these cases, if you got people in a room whose party and ideology was kind of left outside and we said, let's, let's just try and solve these problems to benefit all of Americans, we could solve these problems. But it, there's a lack of the kind of leadership that we need. Uh, and I think the, America's longing for it. And as the, not that you are anymore, but as the CEO of a publicly traded company, yes. how do you reconcile not being happy with a reduction in a corporate tax rate? Yeah. Well, I think any, any CEO of a public company has a primary obligation responsibility as a fiduciary to build shareholder value. But I, I've been criticized so many times for making the statement that not every business decision is an economic one. And in fact, that's one know, of the things I admire so much about you, know, you. Well, thank you. I'm not, and I think we've demonstrated Starbucks stock since 1992 when we went public, despite all the things we've done to share success, health care, stock ownership, free college tuition, 401k, equal pay for women, all of these things. The stock is up 20,000 percent since we went public. Wow. Uh, but the the so it the is possible. It, not only is it possible, but I think the consumer today has so many choices and wants to support a company, not unlike yours, whose values are consistent with their own. And those companies that walk away from those values and are only pursuing profit as a primary goal won't be able to attract and retain great people and won't be able to sustain loyalty with their customers because people do not want to be part of something that they don't respect, they don't trust. I agree with that. And, uh, and the currency to success in all of this is a currency of trust that unfortunately has been fractured by the kind of environment that we are living in. And that's why it's so important to stand above that and demonstrate that we're, we're not going to act that way. How long do you think it takes to correct a course like this? That's a very good question. 
Um, I worry about how long America can absorb this kind of rhetoric and lies uh, and divisiveness and bigotry. At the same time, I have such faith in the American people about the resiliency of the country and the res resiliency of the American people. So I want to believe that the country will bounce back uh, from this moment in time. But uh, this is not a moment in time that I think we're going to look back on historically and be proud of. You said something interesting before, which was about the spirit of entre entrepreneurial. Oh, entrepreneurial. <laughs> Thank you. The spirit, the spirit of an entrepreneur. And that it's a quintessential American quality. Yes. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think we as Americans... Because I, you know, I was an expat for a long time, and I've lived in different countries all over the world. And I think that there's something very specifically entrepreneurial about yeah. Americans. And I, I wanted to get your take on that. Why do you think yeah. we have that spirit in spades? I think it's in the coffee. And <laughs> uh, no. scene that, that yeah. we're done. That was a perfect. Uh, I think... If you look at the history of the country and the extraordinary entrepreneurial stories and success, uh, we, we are, we've been given this extraordinary gift and privilege of the freedom of our beliefs, the freedom of our ideas. And uh, I have to go back to my mother, and I know you have a close relationship with yours, is uh, my mother, despite the fact that we grew up in public housing, had this unusual belief that anything was possible in America and our station in life and our zip code was not going to define her son's future. But uh, clearly uh, the accessibility that and the freedom that people feel they have to try things and to navigate through a system in which your class, your zip code, your station in life does not define you uh, is an American virtue. And uh, there's hundreds, thousands of rags to riches stories that is part of the American dream. And I think that speaks to, you don't hear people talking about the, the Spanish dream, the Mexican dream, the China dream, the Malaysia dream. But, you, but when you hear about the American dream, it connotes a, uh, a vivid picture in possibilities. And those possibilities, I think, are the DNA of the country and the spirit of America. And, and, and I must say, you know, judging from what's going on in the country right now, I think it's incumbent upon us to ensure the fact that that American dream uh, stays as vivid and promising for the next generation as it has been for those who have come before us and have sacrificed so much to give it to us. And the American dream should not be based on the color of your skin, your ethnic background, your religion, your status as an immigrant. It should be based on the fact that anything is possible in America, and this is a place where your dreams can come true if you work hard, play by the rules, and put yourself in a position to win. And if you're going to fail, fail fast and start again. And that also is an American uh, ideal. Very much so. What, what do you think, or what for you are the most urgent situations at the moment? Is it climate change? Is it? Uh, I, I don't think you, that, that most people could answer that question without first saying that our 
political system and the apparatus of our two parties are creating a situation in which uh, things are just not working. And uh, that has to be fixed domestically. Uh, but in terms of the world, I mean, I'm certainly concerned about the environment and uh, the fact that uh, you don't have to be a scientist to understand that things are changing. And we are literally, as a world, on a collision course with time. And we must address it. We must fix it. We must have personal responsibility. I'm concerned with America's standing in the world and how we have abdicated our role and responsibility. I don't think that's in our national interest. Uh, and at home, you know, I have the, the rare uh, sight lines and the fact that Starbucks has stores in almost every community in America and in 77 countries. So uh, I get to see and witness many different things. And there are a lot of people in America who are uh, facing despair and hopelessness, and their life is not based on the stock market. Their life is based on whether or not the promise of America is still available to them. And Do you uh, believe I'm, it is? I believe it is, but it's not an entitlement. And what I mean by that is we, we're going to have to do certain things to ensure the fact that everyone in America has access to the American dream. And right now, I think it's slipping away from millions of Americans. And the other thing I'd say is that th this is a, a very critical moment for the country and in the world for, for leadership, for servant leadership. And it, we're hard-pressed to find uh, uh, those kinds of people who we can entrust our lives to. And I think we, we are in a position today in the country and around the world where we're longing for truth, for authenticity, and, and leaders that we can trust. And I am an internal optimist, but optimism is not a strategy. We, we're going to need a strategy, and we're going to have to execute against it to navigate through the challenges we have as a country and the very serious challenges that the country and the world faces. In, in your role as CEO, what was your philosophy around conflict or bridging gaps between people or getting people aligned if you mm -hmm. had people on sure. completely opposite sides of an yeah. issue? Well, when, I, you know, when I'm asked about the success of the company, so much of what we were able to do is directly linked to the culture, the values, and the guiding principles of Starbucks. And, and I spoke earlier about having a core purpose and a reason for being. And the way that manifested itself in addition to the unique benefits we gave people, uh, was one of the things we did on a quarterly basis that was very instructive and very valuable is that every single quarter in every region in the country and every country that a Starbucks operates in, we would, get, we would have a company-wide meeting in which the executive of that region would stand up for about five, ten minutes, talk about the results of this past quarter, the goals of the next quarter, and then for the next hour, there was an open mic, and we've done this now for almost 40 years. And the open mic created an opportunity for people to feel a level of confidence and security that whatever they said, what their concern was or their complaint, that there was going to be no trepidation. There was no trepidation, and there was going to be no one was going to be put in a penalty box as a result of criticizing management. 
and it created a level of transparency, openness, and a dialogue in which conflict was brought up. And then, and then more often than not, the, the company was challenged by our people to stand for something beyond making money. And so uh, we, never, we never intended to be a politically driven organization, but we took on things that in a sense were political. You know, we, we like took what? on... We, we took on the issue of guns. We announced that we were going to hire refugees 24 hours after Trump decided that he was going to ban, you know, the Muslims from coming into the country. We certainly had a very fragile issue in our, in our own company with an incident around race in Philadelphia. But we, we tried to even to elevate the national conversation about race a year before that. And so the relationship we have with post-9-11 veterans, the hiring of veterans, the pursuit of doing things in, in, in communities that have nothing to do with making money but giving back to the community, serving our people. All of these things enriched the, not only the values of the company but our standing with our people and our standing with our customers. And when there was conflict, and there, there was, you, you can't build... There always is. No, we have 350,000 employees. There's going to be conflict. Resolving that conflict is based on what is in our mutual interest? And uh, if you go back to the country and the issue you asked earlier about America, you know, one question we should be asking about the country in relationship to the current political conflict is what kind of country do, w do we want to live in and what is in our national interest? And going back to Starbucks, which is not a proxy for America, we would ask the question, what kind of company do we want to work in? What kind of co company do we want to build and what is in our interest as a company? And those, the answers to those questions in, in of itself are conflictual. But we were always trying to build a great enduring company that was not defined by how much money we made or the stock price, right. although that was our responsibility. But it also sounds like you were creating a baseline of respect Yes. And from that respect, anything is possible if there's mutual respect across yeah. all levels yeah. of the organization. Right. And a currency of trust that managers and leaders understood that if we are going to expect our people to exceed the expectations of our customers, then as managers and leaders, our responsibility first and foremost was to exceed their expectations. And if we, if we can't exceed the expectations of our people, how can we expect them to exceed the expectations of our customers? Right. I feel like this could be applicable to the U.S. government, <laughs> don't you? I have another story for you. Two chairs. Two uh, chairs. What is two chairs? So for the past almost 40 years, every Monday morning, I've been leading a uh, senior leadership team meeting at Starbucks. And then every quarter for the last 40 years, I've been leading a board of directors meeting. And in all of those meetings... Metaphorically, I've had two, two empty chairs in the room. For Elijah and... <laughs> <laughs> no, I kept the door open for Elijah. <laughs> uh, no, the two chairs, it's, it's a serious thing because I never wanted to be in that room with my team or the board and not remember with great acuity why I was there. And I was there to represent our people, and our customers. The board was there to represent the shareholders, as I was, and the leadership team was there to represent the company. 
But I had a, two empty chairs, one for a Starbucks employee we call a partner, and one for a customer. And my litmus test for every decision we've made for 40 years was whether or not this decision, this strategy, or whatever we were going to decide is going to make our customers and our people proud. And if the answer was even marginally no, I wanted to continue the creative debate. And if the answer was no, I would say 95% of the time we weren't going to do it. Uh, because building pride, trust, is all about elevating the culture and values of the company. And so those two chairs were empty for 40 years. And in my mind's eye, I was thinking about them. That's beautiful. Well, I love that. Oh. My last question for you is, what is your morning coffee routine? <laughs> uh, that's kind of complicated. Okay. So I wake up very early, usually around 4.30. Okay. So you can imagine by 7 o'clock I'm so wired. <laughs> uh, but do I, you I, exercise? I do exercise. Do does, you does meditate? It, wait, doesn't yes. it look like it I'm looks, exercising? Yes, you look Come on. very strong and fit. <laughs> now, um, so I wake up and I make a French press of one specific coffee, which is aged Sumatra. Okay. Which is coffee that's been aged in the tropics for five years before it's roasted. Do you grind it? In the morning? I, yeah, yeah, I grind it fresh, and the coffee, the aging, produces an earthiness like a Bordeaux wine that I love. Wow. Okay, then I go to, the, to a Starbucks store near my house, and I have a Dopio Espresso Macchiato. And then Are I, they nervous when you walk in? No one's nervous. We were, in, we were in a Starbucks <laughs> store just uh, 10 minutes ago before we came in here. Now, no one gets nervous. No. But they all recognize you, yeah, right? They do, they do recognize okay. me, yeah. And that's my, my routine. And is there a certain time of day that you cut off drinking yeah. coffee? I try not to have any caffeine after 4 p.m. It's just uh, I have trouble sleeping anyway, so if I have caffeine at late at night, it would be bad for me. What's your coffee? I, I'm a, I like drip coffee. Okay. So I have like a, I forget the name of the machine, but I love it, and it's fast. So yeah. I can wake up and turn it on, and then by the time I brush my teeth, it's basically... You're done. I'm done. Okay. And I'm always experimenting with new okay. coffees. Well, I, I've given you some very good stuff for you to take home. Well, I'm very excited uh, about it. You should it. enjoy it. And, and I, uh, it's great to be with you. Thank and you. congratulations on your success Thank you. as an actress and what you're now doing with your business thank and you. the values that you are demonstrating. It's inspiring. And thank you. Thank you. It's Pat. inspiring for women. Well, we try. Yeah. You're a very um, inspiring person to talk to, and I really so admire. I've always looked up to you, and I, I so admire the consciousness that you bring as you have built your business, and I feel very honored to thank I you. got to speak to you today. Thank so, you, Gwyneth. Thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining my conversation with Howard Schultz today. I'm so grateful he said yes. Check out his book, From the Ground Up. And as of late last year, you can follow him on Instagram at howard.schultz. Thanks again for tuning in to the Goop Podcast. Next week, Elise will be back for her final detox episode on Tuesday and a regular Thursday chat. Hit subscribe to keep up and rate, review, and share with a friend. Check out goop.com slash the podcast for more info.